Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, your science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today, this podcast is going where it's never gone before, as we bring in our very first Star Trek author to Strange New Worlds. John Jackson Miller is the author of a Star Trek novella along with six Star Trek novels, with his seventh coming out this summer. Not only is he famous for his Star Trek work, but he's also written numerous Star Wars and Marvel stories, as well as done research into comic circulation history. So he has a unique and broad perspective on fandom and the entertainment industry, which will shine through in this interview. Now, I know a lot of Star Trek fans out there who have never picked up a Star Trek novel in their lives. And that's totally fine. Reading 400-page books is not everyone's favorite way of ingesting entertainment. But that said, it's one of my pastimes. I've read nearly a hundred Star Trek novels to date, and yeah, they can be hit or miss. But when I encountered John's work with his Prey trilogy, a thrilling Klingon-centric arc that helped celebrate Star Trek's 50th anniversary, he immediately leapt into my pantheon of Star Trek novelists that I must read every time they drop a new title. I also know that John does a lot of careful research for his books because he publishes these super detailed notes accompanying each book on his website. Sometimes he even reaches out to experts to make sure that he brings things up to a level of perfection deserving of Star Trek readership. When we did the, when we did the Prey trilogy, I went and found a Klingon expert to come up with the words. Oh, that's so, fantastic. That I invented. So, because uh, I because I knew one percent of the readers are going to care, <laughs> but they're going to care a thousand times more than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This interview will focus on the development of the more sciencey details of his two latest Star Trek novels. Both of these books fall under the Discovery banner. The first is called The Enterprise War and examines what Captain Pike's Enterprise was up to during Season 1 of Discovery. The second is Die Standing and stars Mirror Philippa Georgiou and her initiation into Section 31. If you haven't read them yet, no worries at all, we'll summarize the key plot points for you as we go along. However, if you haven't read these books yet and want to remain unspoiled, you should probably hit pause on this podcast, grab these novels from your favorite bookseller, and read them first. Now, because we have so much to talk about, right, two novels worth of juicy scientific and sci-fi goodness, I'm breaking up my interview with John into two episodes to keep the runtime of each under an hour. If it helps, just think of this as an epic season-bridging two-parter from your favorite Star Trek show. Today, in part one, we'll get to know John a little better, learn about writing and publishing Star Trek novels, and then embark on the Enterprise War, wrapping up with how John developed a scene where the crew sciences their way out of a sticky situation, which ends up being one of the most dramatic scenes in the book. 
Without further ado, let's hit it. So it's my pleasure to welcome New York Times bestselling author John Jackson Miller to Strange New Worlds. John, nice to finally have you on board. Hey, glad to be here. I have wanted to have you on Strange New Worlds ever since we met at the 2019 Star Trek Las Vegas convention, where I chatted with you at your booth and picked up a signed copy of your Star Trek Discovery novel titled The Enterprise War. Yeah, there it is. Yes, there we go. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, And at that conversation, you mentioned how you and a colleague of yours did actual physics calculations for a very exciting scene in that novel. But before we get to the book and that scene specifically. John, you're the very first Star Trek author that I've had on this show. So I thought I'd start by asking you a few questions about what that is like. I imagine that being a tie-in fiction author for the Star Trek franchise is a lot different from being a novelist in general. So what are some of the unique challenges about writing Trek novels, especially for a TV show like Discovery that is still ongoing and in production? Well, you know, you're writing in somebody else's sandbox, so the characters are not yours, the, uh, the concepts are not yours. And often the rules of the universe have already been established before you get there. And so at a minimum, you're expected to uh, abide by whatever the rules for how science works and how scientific things should be portrayed in that particular universe. Only then do you get to consider, uh, you know, what the real life scientific uh, implications of things would be, uh, because whatever you do cannot interfere with how things have been depicted. I've known for a lot of Star Wars novels and comics, uh, you know, Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic comics, the the Kenobi novel, uh, the New Dawn novel. Uh, in, In all of these, you know, you've got to abide by the Star Wars rules. Uh, in the Star Wars universe, there is sound in space. There just mm-hmm. is. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you're you're going to see you know stellar uh, uh, vistas you know from the surface of planets where you should not see them from. Yet at the same time, within that, I try to make correct the things that I can make correct. Uh, so explosive decompression. I kind of make sure that happens when it's supposed to happen. And you know, when art would come back to me in the comics. A very, very common theme, uh, and it's not just in comics, but it's it's also in films, is you'll see uh, you'll see planetary bodies so close to each other uh, mm-hmm. in in a in a uh, landscape uh, that they just can't be there, or or they'll or they they would tear each other apart, or you know, or you'd see things in the sky that are just so much bigger than they would be, and of course, it's all artistic, uh, you know, artistic license, uh, but. You know, I try to fiddle with that when I can around the edges. Um, you know, Star Trek gives me more of an opportunity to dabble in in both science and pseudoscience than, say, Star Wars would, because uh, in Star Wars, the science is never the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the science can never be the the plot point. You know, nobody is supposed to care uh, how the Death Star works. Nobody is supposed <laughs> to care about these things. Although when things happen that, you know, you just say are impossible, it is it is irritating. Uh, you know, let's, let's not talk about whatever that thing was that happened in episode seven, uh, which was firing flaming zots between stars. Uh, <laughs> that's, you know, there, there it is. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, with Star Trek, though, uh, you know, there are many episodes in which 
the science is the uh, is the point of the story, or it is the springboard for the story. Mm-hmm. The first Star Trek story I did, it was an ebook based on the episode where Jordy and Roe get stuck in between phases, mm-hmm. uh, and they're able to. One. And they're able to walk through uh, walls and things like that. And, you know, uh, and my story was called Star Trek Titan Absent Enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used that whole idea as a springboard. Uh, you know, what, what if you could actually hide an entire species in between phases? But I, I also, with that, got to, uh, along the course of the story, uh, you know, struggle with some of the scientific questions that the story uh, on TV asked. Uh, you know, what happens to uh, somebody who's trying to breathe when they're out of phase? Uh, (laughs) You know, know, what would be the ramifications of being in between sort of these dimensions like this? Uh, And uh, I I even came up with a solution to why we see a Romulan who is out of phase. He's, He's in that sort of immaterial way. We see a Romulan sit down in a chair, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I, I decided, well, my story will actually struggle with the uh, with the uh, struggle. But it'll address the question of why they didn't fly out of the back of the ship, uh, or why he didn't go straight through the chair. Uh, and so I, I I was able to uh, again mix a little bit of quantum physics talk with a little bit of pseudoscience in Star Trek to get to a point where. You know, it's at least more than a hand wave. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I think that's the kind of thing the fans uh, dig. Uh, otherwise, there would not be, you know, books and books you know, explaining the science of Star Trek or the, you know, uh, Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise, that sort of thing. Uh, people like it when we tangle a little bit with the science. Oh, absolutely. And I can tell that as an author, you really love tangling with the science, or at least dropping it in as often as you can. Uh, in your your latest novel, the uh, the one about Giorgio, Die Standing, uh, yeah. you know, you use the term absorption nebula, you have Giorgio sort of raise the artificial gravity of a ship she's trying to escape from to that of the gravity of Jupiter's cloud tops, which is like <laughs> two and a half times as much as Earth, so it slams everybody else to the deck. I mean, you really seem to know what's up in space science is following space science a passion of yours as well i thought it was uh when i was a when i certainly when i was a kid i was uh, I, I was i sort of had parallel tracks i mean i was you know i won the science fair but i also won the the city writing award in, in junior <laughs> high so uh for writing fiction and so I, i'm kind of going along parallel uh, you know i start self-publishing uh my own fanzines and my own my own comics a friend of mine, Ken Barnes, who will come up in the story in a few minutes, uh, the colleague we were talking about, mm-hmm. uh, he actually introduced me to fanzines with his own fanzine, Stardate Now. Wow. Uh, back, back in ninth grade, uh, <laughs> I think he was in, I think I was in seventh at the time. And it was it was just, you know, photocopied for three or four people. And I was one of them. But I was like, oh, you can actually write about Star Trek, you know, in a, in a magazine that you, you self-publish. And that led to Ken and, and me doing quite a lot more in the way of uh, doing fanzines over the next uh, few years. But uh, you know, when I was about to graduate high school, my plan was to go into engineering. The, uh, the University of Tennessee, uh, I lived in, in Memphis, the University of Tennessee has a space institute in Tullahoma. And my theory was 
because I had been at that point very obsessed with uh, the movie 2010 and the novel 2010 because uh, you, know, you want to talk about uh, you know physics there. Uh, you know, you've got the the Leonov and it's it's generating uh, not artificial gravity, but it's it's generating force that allows people to stand uh, and walk around. Uh, and in fact, my senior year science fair project was uh, was on that you know, the, the physics uh, calculations for, for generating gravity at various uh, lengths of the torus that you need for you know, rotating things. And so, you know, my thought had really been, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and then two things happened in succession. Uh, the Challenger exploded. I was a, I was a senior in high school. You know, I, I actually had the, the space shuttle operator's manual, which was a book that somebody had put out with, with all of the schematics. I had that in class that day. And so, you know, I, I, I ran over to bring back the, uh, the one TV set that was, you know, the, the housekeeping crew kept it to watch soap operas on, brought over the TV set to watch that. And then I was just pouring over the schematics you know, just as a, as a civilian looking at this thing, what the heck happened here? What, what possibly could this have been? Um, and this ended up putting a pall on my spring break trip. Everybody else was going on the cruise. Uh, another friend of mine and I were going to go to Cape Canaveral. And, uh, and we, we did go to Cape Canaveral and, you know, there were people there because it's Florida and a spring break and there's always people there, but they had closed down much of the grounds because the vehicle assembly building, they were reassembling the Challenger there. And so we never got any closer to that than the tour bus. And so that just kind of put a pall on it. It was like in 1986, when that happened, they froze all space flight and, you know, even though, you know, I was, I was, I was really more interested in planetary missions. Uh, I, just the previous weekend, I had played hooky so I could watch the NASA channel uh, because the, the Uranus encounter was that weekend. Mm. Uh, and so I was watching the, the live feed coming in. Uh, but when, when that happened, uh, well, I mean, at that point, they were still talking about they're going to use the shuttles uh, to launch most of the interplanetary probes. That was that was what they were discussing at that point. And so it was like, OK, it's going to be some years before anything happens. Um, I still went to the University of Tennessee and took Russian because I knew I was going to, you know, I, I was pretty sure that Arthur C. Clarke had gotten it right and we would be working with the Russians in space. Uh, but I also was uh, I got into calculus class and that was my Waterloo. Uh, I just I did not have the mathematical chops to do that. I'm great with statistics, but ask me what a limit is. I have no idea. So <laughs> I, I walked over to the, uh, the journalism department and uh, within a couple of years, I was you know, managing editor and then editor of the, the campus newspaper. Um, while I was there, most of what I did was uh, you know, writing about government. Uh, I interviewed Joe Biden for a, a time. There's a, a, lot, a lot of interesting people that, that went through there. Uh, but I did dabble a little in uh, in science journalism just to see what it was like. And I got the call. Well, really, I, I assigned it to myself because nobody else wanted it. Do you remember Cold Fusion? Cold Fusion was a was a uh, well, it, it's probably before your time. 1989, two scientists, Fleshman and Pons, had uh, come up with this 
you know, experiment where they believed that they had created basically room temperature fusion. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, we got a call from the head of the physics department at the University of Tennessee who said, okay, this is absolute malarkey. This is not true. This cannot be right. <laughs> I can prove it's not right. I need you to send somebody over and I will sit there and go over the math. And nobody but me was willing to do that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and over the course of two hours, he proved that if their experiment had worked as intended, they would have been killed by the uh, the radiation. And I got an article out of it. I got a front page, got a byline. And that one actually got picked up by the National uh, uh, Syndicate, uh, which was kind of cool. Wow. And at the same time, I said, this is really, really hard. This is really hard uh, because, you know, he was able to work through the couple of hours of math with me, but you know, it's just the same as if I'm in class. <laughs> I, just, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that I can do that. So, uh, you know, I did end up using the uh, the Russian because uh, when I went to graduate school, it was for Soviet studies. Uh, the Soviet Union collapsed on my dissertation. So I, I just decided to follow the journalism thing and, and do what I did. I To make a long story short, which is impossible now, my journalism career took me into a place where I was writing uh, about comics for a, a comics magazine. That led me to you know, work at Marvel. I did a year on Iron Man. And Iron Man, I was basically, you know, again, drawing on some of the scientific stuff. They tried to position me as the, as the Marvel Tom Clancy. Hmm. Uh, everything I did, every military vehicle that we depicted, because my, during my arc, Tony Stark was the, uh, the Secretary of Defense. Uh, and so, Every military vehicle, every unit, every plane was exactly a real thing. And again, this is the journalist thing. I went to one of the people who does PR for the Air Force and was able to get a lot of inside baseball on how things actually work because there's a you know there's a sequence uh, there's a sequence involving a big C5 galaxy airplane hmm. uh, and where I needed to know where people would sit in that plane and I needed to know uh, you know, how much torque the wheels could take, uh, because that's one of those planes that can actually kneel up and down. And every time I would find out something about this, I would put it in the story. So Tony Stark is talking about how much torque the, 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 the landing gear can take. And whether I really you know, am you know, naturally you know, connected to you know, knowing what that stuff is or not, it sounds good. It sounds like something Tony Stark would know. And people want to hear that. And so, you know, uh, Iron Man leads to Star Wars, Star Wars leads to Star Trek. In all of these cases, Jordy LaForge needs to sound like Jordy LaForge. Montgomery Scott needs to sound like he's Montgomery Scott, like he knows stuff. Uh, and so that's, that's what I try and put in these things. And, you know, whatever the book is, whatever the franchise is, you know, you want the characters to sound like the characters and you want the universe to sound like the universe. Uh, and so it's a bit of a mixed drink. It's a cocktail of science, mm -hmm. pseudoscience, uh, and then characterization. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love that story. Um, and it sounds like you found the perfect blend of your interest in space science and NASA activities with writing and journalism, comics, fandom, uh, even a little bit of politics um, sprinkled in there. I read that you have a master's in comparative politics from Louisiana State University. So yeah, that is, uh, that is, you know, we call it Soviet studies just in the building. Uh, but again, <laughs> the, the, again, the problem was, uh, uh, yeah, the Soviet Union I tell it as a joke. 
the Soviet Union did literally collapse while I was working on my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And I was told, well, you can continue working on it because, you know, it'll, it'll still be useful in terms of stu- you know, the study of elites. Uh, and I, I was like, yeah, you know, so what you're saying is if another country with the exact same size, shape, dimensions, cultural history, geography comes along and goes communist, I'll know what to do. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was like, this thing is moving too fast. It's now in the realm of the journalists. And I had already decided that if I was going to be a journalist, I didn't want to be an internationally globetrotting person because I knew I couldn't handle the food. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't that great of a traveler. So, uh, so anyway, yeah, no, I, I, I think that I found kind of a sweet spot with regards to the science and the politics and all of these other things where I know just enough to be able to fake it. I know that if you actually held, you know, the things that I, I write about, you know, up to serious scientific rigor, it would not work or something would be wrong somewhere. But, you know, neither would any of the things that we're seeing on the screen hold up to scientific rigor either. I just want to be able to show that I've done my homework. And then what I do is when I do these things, I will go on my website, farawaypress.com, where I have a behind the scenes page on everything. And this is kind of like where I show my footnotes. You know, there's a story arc where a comet is going to strike the Earth. And so Tony Stark has to get to it very quickly in a, in a, uh, in a spaceship. And so I, I figured out relativistic velocity. I figured out you know, what the time compression would be. I, 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 relying on calculators for this or that, nothing I did by hand for sure. Uh, <laughs> but, but the idea was to show people, this is where I at least made the effort. And, you know, it, it, it's not obligatory that anybody who does anything like this whether it's in space opera or, or, or Star Trek, you know, nobody has to do that kind of background. I just think people like it. Yeah. Well, I certainly do. Um, I think, like you said, it shows that you did your homework. It shows that you care about these things and it also heightens that sense of realism to me that, you know, of course these are people who are super, super smart. So of course they would know about these technical schematics or have done this calculation themselves. So it really helps immerse me in the universe. Before we turn to your uh, books that we're going to be discussing today, I, I just wanted to ask about a little bit of the publishing aspect, because I'm, I'm a yeah. book nerd and I've read lots of Star Trek books over many years. And I've noticed the recent shift in like the publication quality of Star Trek books in recent years. It used to be that all of them were the small yeah. mass market paperbacks. And now they're starting to be published in these larger trade paperback yeah. sizes. And even some of them are coming out as, as hardcovers. Yes. So I was and, wondering... Uh, that's right. My, in fact, my next novel is uh, just announced uh, is a hardcover. That is uh, that's Star Trek Picard Rogue Elements, which I can talk about it a bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, what's going on here is, and this again takes me into yet another one of my sidelines that turned into a, a part of a career. I, I mentioned I was editing magazines for the comics industry. I was actually editing the trade magazine for the industry. So I was I was dealing with the publishing side of things. I was dealing with the retailing side of things. Uh, and I still run a website called Comicron, uh, which is a website that's devoted to sales figures and sales trends and things like this. And you know, one of the things that, that we know in book publishing is that the way that people read has changed. The paperback book, the mass market paperback, as we call it, was designed for a world of newsstands. They are by intention designed to be destroyed if they're not sold. And in fact, if you look inside the book and it says, 
if you if you get a coverless copy of this book, somebody stole it. Uh, that's what that means. Mm. Uh, because when it, when a retailer cannot sell one of those books, they rip the cover off and they send the cover back for a return credit. And that was fine for the age of the newsstand for when books were in the spinner rack at 7-Eleven. It was fine for, you know, the heyday of it was in the Walden Books era. That was the mall store. You know, there'd be these very long stores that would go way back. But in order to have lots and lots of books, they would mostly stock these paperbacks. Um, the problem is the retailers don't make much money on those. And even today, if you go to Amazon, you will not find a mass market paperback discounted more than 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because they don't make any money on them. And that's because in order to keep them disposable, there can't be much profit margin for the retailer. And so what began to happen is publishers who had gone from, we'll release the hardcover and then we'll put out you know, the mass market paperback, they began shifting from either first publication was in the trade paperback format or you know, first publication is in the hardcover and then they do a trade paperback. And that is how things have moved. Just this month, uh, as we're recording this, uh, Del Rey announced that all new Star Wars hardcovers uh, will have their paperback versions in the trade paperback. Again, mm-hmm. why is it better? It's more durable. It doesn't get destroyed when it's not sold. And because the pricing structure on it is different, you know, there's money in there for Amazon if it wants to or any store to discount it. And so there's there's some pricing freedom in there. And so, you know, really, uh, you know, a lot of people love the mass market paperbacks, uh, but it is also kind of a dinosaur. The low end consumer for novels uh, has gone to Kindle, has gone to ebooks. Ah, right. uh, the, the, the price conscious person has gone to ebooks. So, um, you know, one of the nails in the coffin was was Walden Books going out. You know, it's it's very hard to find a mall with a with a uh, with a bookstore in it, uh, and and you know what are our bookstores today? Our bookstores today are are you know the the model that you have the Barnes and Noble and similar stores. Uh, you know, you kind of need a bigger package. You want a book that you can see across the room. Spine out doesn't sell as many books as actually being able to have a cover that you can you can put forward. Uh, and so yes, um, Star Trek. When they renegotiated the uh, the license uh, with CBS about three years ago, they decided that they would shift first just the discovery books and then everything to the uh, to the trade paperback size. And then now with Picard, Picard is getting you know, the hardcovers, and so that's what my new book is. Also, everything is getting uh, an audiobook. Audio again was not so much a thing. We there were Star Trek audiobooks in the past. But it really took Audible. It took uh, it took you know iTunes. It took technology to come along and basically make that a much more popular format. Uh, and so yeah, you know, uh, depending on what year it is, if you get in a time machine, uh, your 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 book is going to be coming out in a different format, in a different way, and sold to a different person at a different price point. Wow. Well, thank you for all those insights into the publishing industry and this sort of shift that we're living through right now that is spurred on by technological innovations and the different ways that people are reading. So let's dive into your discovery novel, The Enterprise War. Um, Mm -hmm. So this novel chronicles what Captain Pike, Commander Una, and Lieutenant Spock were up to during season one of Star Trek Discovery during the Klingon War. Um, So 
can I get you to give just a very brief, like one minute elevator pitch summary for this novel for those listeners who haven't read it yet? Okay, the, uh, the Enterprise as captained by Pike and with science officer Spock, they have been ordered to stay away from the Klingon war. And I was given basically a little more than a year of, of, of story time. Uh, you know, they could be wherever they want, but they can't come back. <laughs> and so I decided I would put them in a place they can't call back from a, 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 a nebula where, you know, it's just impossible to respond uh, easily from uh, very much like the, uh, the briar patch in uh, Star Trek insurrection. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, what I have is a situation where they wander into somebody else's war. Uh, they wander into a war between a, a race called the Rengru and a, you know, really a military organization that I put a lot of time into the design of, uh, basically of, of, you know, mech warrior kind of, uh, kind of guys called the Boundless. Uh, and they end up kidnapping more or less the entire Enterprise science team uh, and pressing them into service as, uh, as warriors, uh -huh. uh, which leaves Enterprise with uh, you know, almost no scientists beyond, well, you know, Pike himself knows some science. And then I have a situation that develops as a result of all this, where we knew that it was the case that the Enterprise could split into even before they did it in Next Generation, because it's mentioned in some of the old uh, blueprints or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it had never obviously been shown. And I said, well, okay, what I'd like to do is I'd like to show the first time this happens. The, uh, <laughs> the I, I, have here, I have here a little model. It's actually, if it's split in two, you wouldn't have that part there, but that's, mm -hmm. that's the way it broke up. Uh, that's what I kept on my desk, an old Enterprise model. I said, uh, I want to do a situation where I'm going to split the engineering section off from the saucer section. And I'm gonna put all the engineers in the engineering section so that the only engineer that's left, no scientist and the only engineer pretty much that's left in the saucer section is kind of the, the, the original character I created for the book. This is one of the sort of side heroes of the book, uh, Professor Galagian, uh, who is a renowned scientist uh, known for having created uh, you know, shielding technology that is used in the enterprise. Uh, but while he is a, he's a very much a superstar sort of a scientist, he has absolutely no technical background in terms of how to turn things on and off. And I said, I want to make the centerpiece of this book a story where the saucer section is trapped on a planet. And I, I what I wanted to do, and again, Stories evolve as you're writing this. This was originally going to be the entire center section of the book. Mm -hmm. And as the book developed, uh, it became sort of the you know, act four or five of it. Uh, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to have this problem of how they were going to get the Enterprise saucer section off of a planet. I wanted that to be sort of the, the crowning engineering moment yeah. uh, for the crew uh, and it would be the moment where they would come together and where the Galagian character would redeem himself. And, you know, why did I want to do this? Well, I want to do this for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is obviously dramatically, it's great. You know, Pike is somebody whose greatest fear is losing his, uh, his staffers, losing his crew. Mm -hmm. You know, when we meet him in the cage, he's about to hang it up just because he lost a couple of people on Rigel 7. And so I was going to do this. And of course, obviously, people who know Pike's story know that in the end, he's incredibly isolated because he ends up locked in a box. 
but I wanted to I wanted to bring him to that point and and have him claw back and have his crew claw back. That was one of my intentions. The other intention is that the notion of the Enterprise saucer section and also the notion of the Enterprise being on a planet. You know, we saw, I think it was in Into Darkness, the Enterprise is underwater or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I despise that in so many ways Uh, (laughs) because I don't believe it would work. And if it would work, then basically there's nothing it can't do. I just, it just doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to me to be a capability that you would put into a vessel like that if you are not also going to put landing gear on it. Uh, <laughs> it just seems, it seems ludicrous. So that I always felt was one of those things where it was a, gee, wouldn't it be neat if kind of a thing that nobody actually did the homework on or expected that anybody wanted to see the homework on. Well, I wanted to actually grapple with the notion of, okay, all of the all the engineering books about Star Trek have always said that the saucer section, you know, it's designed when it gets on a planet or when it lands, it's designed to land, but that's it. It can't come back. It cannot be rejoined except at a star base. And if it's on a planet, there's no way to get it off the planet except to have something come in, probably and tractor it off or something like that. Uh, it, it just it just can't be done. It's not designed for it. And I sat down with the blueprints and I realized, yeah, it's just not designed for it. There's nothing it can do to get off that would actually produce the thrust that would get off the planet, much less yeah, anything it would need to do as far as attitude control or something like that. And so um, I said, I want to do this. And I think I know the way to do it. And I initially thought, well, let's let's put it in an ocean. And I for, first thing I did was I Googled. Uh, and and found where people on the Trek boards, various boards had discussed in the past, can the Enterprise float? You know, I came to the conclusion on my own, uh, but I wanted it reinforced that, yeah, the saucer section could float, but it would be a a lot fewer questions about it if it's not on water. And that was when I called my friend Ken. This was exactly the sort of conversation that you know, we would have as teenagers. Could you do this? Could you do that? Could you do yeah. that? And Ken has a very good mind for for all of these things. And you know, we we started shooting holes in it. You, you said you know that we did calculations. I don't want to oversell that. We sat around and we worked out. Well, okay, what are the capabilities of the vessel itself? And you know, what does it weigh? And what is what is its volume? What is its mass? And what sorts of things can we put it on? And not have a whole question about people not believing it. Well, obviously, you know, if you put it on a, a, a something that's a it's a that's a, a dense liquid like methane, the question of whether it can float or not is gone. But then the question is whether it can escape, because you start looking at things like viscosity and stuff like that, and sure. yeah. and you look at questions of surface tension, and you know, just all these phrases that we start throwing back and forth to each other. And it's like, okay, well, we, we need to worry about these things. And then we further needed to worry about, well, how you would actually, um, I wanted the characters to actually live in this situation for months. Mm. I mean, months, but I, as I said, it was originally going to be the middle third of the book. Yeah. Um, it, it ends up being still a very long time, about six months, but I wanted them to have to cope with the situations. And I added a couple of situations to it. One is that the ship is upside down. Everything is, is out of orientation already. You know, they've got methane uh, sea below. 
Uh, they've got cyanide rain above. I can't remember whether it was a moon of a, a gas giant or if it was a if it was a brown dwarf. Um, I think it was but, a brown dwarf in this uh, in, yeah. in this book. But it sounds so, a lot uh, like Titan, Saturn's moon Titan. Yeah, it sounds like Titan. I think it has to be smaller than Titan. Uh, I, I, be, I began thinking it needed to be something like Triton or something like that. I think I determined that we didn't want gravity be, to be more than about 10%. Okay. We wanted it to be up and down and we wanted them to have no trouble getting around in this uh, in this ship. But the problem is simply that as one character says, I am tired of looking up at the toilet. Uh, <laughs> everything is everything is just oriented the wrong way. So job one is, well, job one is restoring, you know, some power and restoring life support. Uh, but then job two has got to be, we've got to flip this thing over. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Ken and I discussed this. We figured, okay, this could probably be done just with the thrusters. You know, you gun the thrusters and you probably killed the thrusters based on what they're able to output and and you could flip it over and we have that moment and then i added a complication uh, because you always just want to keep throwing things at people i added the complication that one of the characters uh, in fact the the surviving ship's doctor or actually the the lead nurse at that point is pregnant Mm. and so then we began to grapple as well with well what is it going to be like going through an indefinite period, and it turns out to be about six months in this frame, five or six months, and what would the ramifications be? And they realize the very first thing they've got to do is get her into gravity boots uh, so that at least she could spend some of the time in normal gravity. You know, I, I was always looking within the timeline, what do they have at this point? Mm-hmm. Well, we know that they've got magnetic boots as of Kirk's time, so that made sense that they would still be there. Uh, but magnetic boots, of course, are not, they're not gravity. So they need to get gravity plating. And so the first thing they do is they power up gravity plating just for her part of the day. But it makes no sense to do gravity plating all around on the ceiling. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, what ends up happening here is they do flip the ship and then we get into the next problem, which is the thrusters, even on this small world, are not going to get it off of the planet. And again, we get into the pseudoscience, the, uh, we get into the, the technical specs. I was constantly looking to see, all right, what is still in the saucer section? What works? There's no shuttles in the saucer section of the original Enterprise. There is an impulse drive, uh, but the impulse drive points out the back. Mm-hmm. And the impulse drive does not depend on the warp drive, uh, or rather it does not depend on the, on the warp core. The, the impulse drive has its own independent fusion uh, system. So it, it stood to reason that they could get that back running again. But even then, all they could do would just be go around the planet really fast <laughs> and, and you know, sailing around. And they needed to actually be able to change orientation and point up uh, and again, what I said is, you know, let's, let's assume that we've, we've blown up the thrusters at this point. And that was when Ken and I came up with this, this additional idea, which is, okay, well, uh, and, and, I, and I gave it to the engineer Galagian. Um, they got one other thing. They've got phasers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I looked this up and said, okay, they could actually uh, volatilize. Uh, that's a hard word to say, but they could actually fire the phasers, yeah. which are forward facing and point down. If they could flip over, they could fire the phasers as the impulse drive is going. 
they could point down and as they did, the phasers would vaporize the methane, creating basically an incline mm-hmm. as they went. And right. that would get them escape trajectory. At that point, you say, all right, that's close enough for government service. That's, clo- <laughs> that's, that's close enough for Star Trek. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, it ends up being a dramatic moment. It ends up being a character moment. It ends up being something that gets everybody on the bridge involved because I'm using the phasers. That gets, you know, Galagian's sort of biggest critic, uh, Commander Nan uh, from Discovery, involved in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gives him a moment. It also you know, involves Spock because Spock is on the next moon out, to the next planet outward or whatever. And I, I needed them all to be in the same planetary system, not at different planets. Because I needed I needed Spock to be relatively close, but you know, just sort of in a, a Europa Callisto kind of a thing, not not mm-hmm. clo- close, but not close, so that they're talking to each other a few hours each day, only when they're facing each other. But it gives him while he's isolated uh, in this what is literally a Robinson Crusoe kind of a story. <laughs> we, we were we refer to it many times. The the planet on which uh, the Enterprise is trapped is called Defoe. Yeah, for Daniel Defoe. And and what I wanted to do is have even have Spock involved. You know, basically checking the math for the engineer while he's on the other planet. That way, it wasn't Spock coming up with everything. Anyway, so that is you know, spoiler warning. That's how we did it. Uh, and <laughs> that's uh, great and, you know i think it, it gives us you know, several dramatic moments and also by conveying to the reader that i care about these details that means i'm not going to hand wave them at the end mm-hmm. that means it's not going to be oh well they naturally escaped that means i'm not going to come up with something else so uh, i sort of tip my hand when I'm writing this, if I pay attention to the physics problems, if I pay attention to the, you know, the biological problems with the, with the fetus, for example, I'm basically at that point committing to the reader. These are the rules I'm going to play with. And I'm going to solve this problem that I'm presenting using science. Right. Right. Yeah. Like you said, it was a very dramatic scene. It was a character scene. And it's a very Star Trek scene too, because you know the thing that really makes me love Star Trek more than anything else is when a crew comes together and is very clever and uses their diverse talents yeah. and abilities and intellects to come up with a technical solution to a very difficult problem. And this was exactly it. You know, use the impulse engines, but also the phasers <laughs> to vaporize or volatilize the <laughs> methane in this Titan-like sea and achieve escape velocity. It was so great. Can you tell me a little bit more about your friend, Ken? Is is he a physicist or? Uh, uh... Ken, Ken got a... a... He, he got both a, a doctorate in microbiology and a law degree. So he, oh, wow. he did pat, he did, he did patent law. I, I, I think he probably still is, but uh, you know, some of the uh, early work on, uh, you know, patenting uh, microorganisms or not microorganisms, but, but, you know, designer genes and that sort of thing. Uh, he, he lives back in my hometown of Memphis. And I, I, I dedicated one of my previous novels, the Star Trek Prey novel, uh, I think the second book in that trilogy uh, to him, uh, because again, all of this stuff comes from the obsessions of the fans. And, you know, yeah, he was the person that, uh, you know, I'd seen Star Trek before, but he, he was the person that really got me more into it. 
You're listening to my interview with Star Trek author John Jackson Miller. You know, I particularly loved hearing about John's career journey, how he bounced around between majors and industries before finding the perfect meld between his loves of space science, journalism and writing, and comics in his highly successful job as a tie-in fiction writer. It gives me a kind of hope, too, that one day my passions can all align into something of a unique and successful career. I also thought John's comparison between Star Trek and Star Wars was super insightful, especially the part where he said that science can never take a central role in a Star Wars story, whereas it often forms the foundation of Trek. I was actually thinking along similar lines as I watched Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery and Season 2 of The Mandalorian concurrently last fall. As many of you know, I did reaction podcasts to the Discovery episodes that had three segments, Think, Feel, and Question. And at some point, I thought to myself, you know what the real difference between Disco and Mando is? For Disco, I can easily fill all three categories week after week, but if I had to do the same kind of reaction to The Mandalorian, I'm not sure if I could have a weekly think segment, just feel and question. Star Trek really does make you think, and that's because so much thought goes into making it. But what I learned to appreciate from this conversation with John is that it's not enough to just put thought into your Star Trek story. You have to show that thought, too. You have to show your homework, whether through the description of the world or the characters' technobabbling or their clever collective actions. And if you don't, it just won't feel like Star Trek. Finally, as someone who has studied Saturn's moon Titan, I would feel really guilty if I didn't mention that liquid methane is actually less dense than liquid water. But whatever, it's a minor detail that doesn't at all ruin the logic of the scene for me, which is more about solving a puzzle using broken and barely functioning pieces than it is about the minutia of the natural environment. Interestingly, floating in a sea of liquid methane is not out of the question. In fact, in 2009, scientists proposed a mission to Titan called the Titan Mare Explorer, or TIME, which essentially is a high-tech buoy brimming with cameras and chemical analyzers to explore the wild environment of Lygia Mare, a methane lake near Titan's North Pole. Time was proposed to NASA as a Discovery-class mission, and no, I'm not making this up at all. That's exactly what it's called. But alas, it didn't win the Discovery Program competition. Instead, NASA selected the mission to Mars that is known as InSight. Coming up in part two of my interview with John Jackson Miller, we'll finish up talking about the Enterprise War, and then move to the Star Trek Discovery novel called Die Standing, his Giorgio-centric novel. And finally, we'll learn what gives John hope for the future. 
Until then, see you out there.